itching in. <laughs> if you have your Bible with you this morning, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read verses 13 through 19, and the title of the message today is My View of Church, and uh, this is part of our worldview as we're forming our worldview in 2020 and uh, seeing how we view the world, we, we have to figure out how do we view the church. And in Matthew chapter 16, we have a passage of scripture that deals with that. And so let's read our text and dive right in. Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray and ask God to be our teacher this morning. Dear Lord, I do pray and ask that you would illuminate your word for us today. We believe that you have inspired it. We believe that you have preserved it perfectly to our generation. And we believe that your Holy Spirit illuminates it for us as believers. So I pray today, Lord, that you would inform us about your church and that we would have the right view, your view, of this entity, this body. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to accurately explain the things that you meant by this text and that it might forever change the way we see your glorious bride. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we talk about worldview, we have to understand that our worldview is really formed by a couple of ingredients. One is our core beliefs. Well, what are the things that, that we have come to believe throughout our life, our faith, our religion? That's one ingredient. But I have also discovered that another ingredient to our worldview is our environment. What is going on around us? And because of that, our environment has recently changed in this year of 2020. I mean, last year, 2019, none of us could have predicted or even imagined what this year was going to be like. Uh, to, to use the word that's been used, overused, it's unprecedented. It, it hadn't happened before. But along with that, we have to realize that that change in environment has applied a certain amount of pressure to the way that we view the church and that sadly, some people's view of the church has been altered because of recent events. And so I, I'm afraid, I'm concerned that Christians have had their view of the church affected by the world we live in in general and by this pandemic specifically. So first, I, I would point out this. Uh, we got the impression that church was non-essential by the shutdown. 
right? That, that was a, a new development. Never before have we ever divided businesses into essential and non-essential. And never before had the church been categorized as non-essential. But you and I have been thrown in, thrust into this brand new environment. And when the church was shut down, it was associated with a list of other non-essential entities. The second factor that has affected our view of the church is that we have come to believe that a video of a church service is an acceptable alternative to worshiping in person with the gathered church. Now, historically, the first one has happened before. There have been times in history when the church was shut down, could not gather. I remember in, uh, in, in being introduced to COVID-19 and the shutdown and all of that reading about the Spanish flu of 1918 and how that church is closed down for a period of time. But I'll tell you what's never happened in history before, and that was the undertone of non-essentiality. That is, never before, even though the churches were shut down, they were never called non-essential. But today... On our front, that's exactly what happened when the church was shut down. It was classified as non-essential. And so that sends a message to you and I. And for over two months, it was non-essential. It wasn't essential like a hospital or some other business that was open. And then the other factor is that the church had to use the only avenues that were open to it. And so since we could not gather in person... We created our online presence, we pumped up our online presence, we promoted our online presence, and we asked people, worship with us online, tune in on Facebook, drive the parking lot, turn in on the radio, and in trying to minister in that capacity, the repercussion is that that became an acceptable alternative to coming to church, so that I'm concerned that now there are people who don't have not returned to church, not because they're afraid of contracting the coronavirus, but because they like the alternative of watching it online, viewing it by video. Now, that's not to say that video is wrong. That's not to say that we're going to stop doing the video. We just need to be aware of how things impact our worldview, don't we? Because what happens to our worldview is that it doesn't change overnight. There are very few paradigm shifts that you'll experience in your life where you actually turn a complete 180 on the way that you view things. It erodes little by little by little by little without our notice. And so I just want us to, to put this on the radar screen and say, okay, my view of the church could have been affected by the shutdown and the alternative of the video. And so... I want to ask you, church, as you think about it, how, how has it affected your view? How does the church fit into your worldview? Do you classify it with work or do you classify it with school? You know, uh, for that, some of those things were shut down. Some of those things were transferred online. Do you associate it with sports or recreation? Some of those things were shut down completely and, and not reopened or uh, done online. And so you and I have to realize that we, we're constantly categorized things in our mind and in our worldview and we may have changed the category in which we view the church I mean do I view the church as important or unimportant is the church essential or is it non-essential is it disposable 
or is it non-disposable, indisposable? And, and, and when we consider what our view of the church is, we've got to realize that translates into our commitment level of the church. That, that means I'm either going to attend church frequently or infrequently. I, I'm either going to be a participant or I'm going to be a spectator. I'm either going to be a contributor or I'm going to be a consumer. You see, when we think about the church, we need to realize all of that is processing in our world view. And it's become very easy to become a spectator and not a participant. And it's become very easy to become a consumer and not a contributor. You might say, hey, hold on a minute. I mailed in my tithe check even when you guys didn't. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about contributing to the body of Christ with our very presence. And so I want to take us to this passage, and I want, uh, I want us to examine what God says in His Word, because this is the very first mention of the church in the entire Bible. You can get out your concordance, you can read from Genesis through, you can look it up on your Bible app, and you'll find the very first time the church is mentioned, it's mentioned in Matthew 16, 18, and it's mentioned from the lips of Jesus. Why is that important? Well, there are rules to Bible study, and one of the rules of Bible study is the principle of first mention. The first time that God mentions something in Scripture, He oftentimes embeds into it some teaching about how we ought to view and interpret that subject all the way through Scripture. He has done the same for us today. There are some things that are embedded in this church, about, in this text about the church that ought to frame the way that we view the church. The other factor is that this comes from the lips of Jesus. This is not simply a, a person offering commentary. This is not a prophet. This is not an apostle. Even though they were inspired, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, and He is talking about the church. And so first we need to step back into their culture and say, what were they hearing? If this is the first time Jesus mentions the church, and it's the first time that the disciples hear about the church, what is their frame of reference? Well, in the Greek, that word church is translated from a compound Greek word called ekklesia. It's two smaller Greek words put together to make one larger Greek word, which means a called-out assembly. Jesus did not invent this word. As with most of the words in the Bible, they were already in common usage. And then Jesus and his apostles brought them into the context of the church. So what did ecclesia mean in the Roman Empire? Well, if you remember at this time, Rome is the dominant world power. It began at its capital in Rome, and it began working its way around the Mediterranean Sea, going through Europe, into Syria, into the Middle East, down into North Africa. And it is nearing its zenith so that Rome is the most powerful empire in the world, and it has conquered many other countries and made them vassal states, that is, that they were subject to the Roman Empire. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were about 60 million people, but not everyone in the Roman Empire was a citizen. Of course, there were people who were born as Romans who had Roman citizenship, but there are also other ways to become citizens 
in the Roman Empire. If you remember when the Apostle Paul was arrested and he was about to be beaten, he says, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen without any cause? And they backed off. And we know that Paul was a Jew. He was from the tribe of Hebrew, uh, a tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he had a pure bloodline. He was the son of a Pharisee. He himself had served as a Pharisee. He could have only done that if he was truly a Jew. And yet he was a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship came with certain privileges. That's why Paul was able to stand before Caesar. None of the other apostles were able to do that because probably none of them had Roman citizenship. But because of his Roman citizenship, he could appeal to the court system and it would get him all the way to the palace of Caesar. One of the other benefits of Roman citizenship was that you were part of the ecclesia of your town. That is, when there was a business to be dealt with by the citizens in your town or the citizens of Rome, they would call the ecclesia. It was a called-out assembly. It was citizens who were called out of the general populace and came together for the governance of their city, town, or province. And so that's the word that Jesus is using. That's what the apostles, the disciples, are familiar with. And so Jesus takes that word and then he nuances it by adding a pronoun. I will build my church. Not, not the Galilean ecclesia, not the ecclesia of Caesar, but the ecclesia of Christ, the called out assembly of Christ. And so Jesus just changed the entire meaning of that word by nuancing it with it being his church. So what does that mean? Well, that means that Jesus came to earth to establish his kingdom. And we read the Gospels, we read over and over about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus established the church, he was creating an ecclesia. He was calling out of the general populace a group of believers, a group of kingdom citizens who would come together for the work of the kingdom on earth. And so that is the framework in which this context is set. He is talking about the church. It is a called out assembly, but not of Roman citizens, of Christians who are called together for the kingdom's business. And so I want to give you five dimensions to formulate your view of the church from this text. There are five dimensions that Jesus highlights in this text that ought to form our view of the church. What does it mean to be a member of Christ's ecclesia? What, what are the responsibilities? What are the benefits? Oh, how should I operate? You see, because those Roman citizens could operate by a different set of rules than the non-citizens. And the same is true for you and I. And so number one, it's foundation. The church provides a foundation. Notice in our text in verse 16, Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the truth statement that he makes 
to which Jesus refers to when he says in verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so the church is built on some foundation, is it not? There's been a little bit of uh, disagreement throughout history with that, especially with the Roman Catholic Church, because they believe that when Jesus says, "Upon you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, they believe that Jesus was saying he's going to build his church on the rock of Peter. But in the Greek, there is this difference in terms. He calls Peter Petros, which means stone, pebble, rock, small rock. But then he says, upon this Petra, I will build my church. And that Petra is what was used for bedrock. It means a broad ledge of rock. It is the word that is used when Jesus gives the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. Remember, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. But the wise man, it says, he dug down to the rock and he founded his house upon the rock. It is the idea of not even just a large stone or even a boulder. It is the idea of a ledge, a rock ledge, a bedrock stone that is to be built upon. Well, Peter's not the bedrock. Peter's just a chip off the old block. He's one of the foundational stones, as Ephesians 2.20 says. The rock is the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation. And so in building your worldview, no doubt you're going to ask, why should the church be important to me? Why should I view it as being essential and non, uh, not non-essential? That is because you and I need a foundation to build our lives on. And the church helps provide that foundation and to strengthen that foundation. You and I have to understand that living in this world is like living in the desert where the wind is always blowing the sand and the topography is ever-changing. How many of you all, I'm not going to ask ages, but you all adults, how many of you all would say the world has changed in your lifetime? Right. Every, anybody who's still breathing notices that. The world has changed in my lifetime. Now, not to create some generational debate between boomers and millennials, but how many of you all have, have witnessed or had a conversation with someone from a younger generation, and you're a little bit surprised that, that some things that were fundamental, foundational to you in your early life are not even on the radar screen for them at this point in time? Now, look, it's not about new and old. I'm all for advancement. I'm all for technology. I'm thankful for that. I'm glad that I live in the year 2020. I like electricity. I like hot showers. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm all for advancements. But what we need to realize is that just because something is old doesn't mean it's outdated. There are certain foundational truths that never change. And we need to have a foundation to our life that is constantly being strengthened. And that's what the church will do for you and I when we're part of the body of Christ and we actually show up for the assembly. You know what's happening? We're going to come in here and we're going to push back some of the sand that's blown up against the foundation. We're going to say, look at what you're standing on. It is not an ever-changing topography. It is a stone that is set fastened to the earth that is immovable that you need to build your life on. 
1 Corinthians 3.11 says, Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone that the church is built on, and He is the foundational stone that you and I need to be built upon. And if you come to church and you bring your kids to church, you're going to be giving them a foundation that will stand sure when the world is rocking and reeling from all the tumultuous activity that is in it. And so I, I believe that the, the church provides a foundation according to God's Word. Number two, revelation. Revelation. Just, just, we're, we're just looking at the text here. So if you would, look back with me at, at verse 17. Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. That prefix bar just means son, so Simon, son of Jonah. And then he goes on and says this, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. What Peter said when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was speaking from revelation from God. What, what is revelation? Revelation is God revealing to you and I things about Himself in the world that we could not, would not know if He had not revealed it. How do I know that God created the heaven and the earth? Well, it's not because I'm thousands of years old and we're, was here to see that. It's not because the universities have really propped up my belief in uh, the creation of the earth by God. I mean, if anything, they've tried to undermine that with, a, with an evolutionary theory. The only way that I could know that is because God revealed it in His Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's revelation. God divinely revealing to you and I something that we would not know. How about this? How do I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins? I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I, I never met him. I did not witness him. I, I cannot read uh, Hebrew. I, I have never read any original documents about How do I know? Because God has revealed it to me in his word. It is revelation. And so revelation is important to life because if you don't understand that there is revelation that God has given, your worldview is going to be absent of that. And you're not going to understand God or His activity in the world. And get this, the church is the repository of truth on planet earth. What do I mean by that? Well, think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, uh, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What does that mean? That means that God gave revelation to the church, just like God gave revelation to Peter, who is part of the first church he gave revelation to the church that the church is supposed to share with others the church is the repository or the depository of that revelation and that's why when you come to church all i try to do is be an expository preacher i just try to expose what is in the revelation i don't have any philosophy or wisdom to help you in life uh, my advice is as good or bad as the next person's. And so I don't stand up here and simply try to give you good philosophies. I simply come up here and try to exposit the Word of God and expose it and say, this is what God said. Why? Well, because Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
We, we can't make it through life without the Word of God. We need the revelation of God, and God has given His revelation to us. I think about uh, what uh, Peter said when, when Jesus had preached some hard truth in John chapter 6, and, and many of Jesus' fringe followers couldn't handle it, and they decided that they weren't going to follow Him anymore. And Jesus turns to His 12 disciples, and He says, Will you depart from Me also? And good old Peter speaks up, and he says, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That is the revelation. That is what the church has. If you're not going to get it here, where are you going to get it? Now, I wholeheartedly believe that, that we ought to study God's Word. We ought to read God's Word devotionally. You ought to have a private time uh, in which you read God's Word. You ought to dig deeper on your own. You ought to study God's Word. But I also believe that the church is instrumental to us getting God's Word and understanding God's Word because it has the revelation. And so the church provides a foundation for our life. It, it, it provides revelation for us from God. How about this? Edification. Verse 17 uh, and 18 uh, goes on to say this. Verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus didn't just say, I will start my church. I will fund my church. He said, I will build my church. So when Jesus started the church, he started a project that is ongoing until this day. And the idea there is edification. It is the idea of being built up. And what I know about life is that I need to grow. Everything about life, God indicates that growth is supposed to be a part of it. We have babies. We bring those babies home. When we begin feeding them, we take them back to the doctor, and the doctor weighs them to see if they are growing. They measure them. They have charts by which they compare them to the growth rate of other children. Why? Because growth is a part of life. And if growth is not happening, something is malfunctioning. Well, the same is true for you and I. As Christians, we're supposed to be growing, and the church facilitates that growth. Jesus is building us up. Let me ask you all who are Christians, how many of you all have grown since you've gotten saved? You know more about God? You, you, you live more for Christ? Did you get all that by yourself through independent study? No. Oh. When I look back at my life, while I know that there's many tributaries that have come in that have contributed to my growth, none is greater than the church. The church was the main contributory to my growth in faith and in the knowledge of the Word of God. Because that is God's design for you and I. And we need that. We need that growth in our life. Peter later would write in his letter, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. And so if I want to grow as a Christian, if I, if I plug in and become part of a church, I am going to reap the benefits of growth. And by the way, we're supposed to be growing all the way to heaven. Peter wrote his last letter, 2 Peter, Three chapters. The last chapter has 18 verses. And the very last verse that Peter ever writes and God inspires and leaves behind 
says this, but grow. But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the continuing tense. It is the idea that we are to keep growing. We are to keep growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. How are you going to keep growing if you do not come to the growth center that God has for you and I? As I think about that, I'm reminded of uh, going to the gym. I I have had gym memberships uh, for uh, off and on most of my adult life. And like you, there have been times when I had the gym membership. I was a member of the gym, but I did not frequent the gym. Did you know that that gym has some nice equipment that I could never afford? I mean, it's got a big, nice indoor walking track. It's got free weights. It's got hammer strength machines. It's got ellipticals. I mean, it has all kinds of stuff. But just being a member of that gym does not help me grow muscle. What I have found is that if I take advantage of my gym membership and I actually go to the gym and pick something up, then my muscles begin to grow. And there's some real benefits that come from it. And then the frequency with which I go to the gym determines the results of growth in my life. Well, can I tell you the same is true of the church. Just being a member of a church is not going to guarantee that you grow. Just being a Christian, having put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, does not guarantee that you are growing in your faith. You know what God's growth plan for the, church, or for the Christian life was? It, it is the church. Because He wants us to come and grow where He builds us up. And by the way, when He begins building us up, edifying us, that's when we have the ability to go out and reach other people. That's when the second part of the plan kicks in of go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's when uh, local evangelism kicks in and we receive power after the Holy Ghost to come upon us and we'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. That, that growth comes as God invests in us and He builds us up and then we are able to reach out and build up others into the kingdom and church of Christ. But not only do we have edification and growth that comes from the church, but we also receive protection. Notice verse 18, again, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, there is a threat that is out there in our world, and the church provides protection from it. Jesus said that the gates of hell would never prevail, would never dominate, would never lock in the church. I remember early on when I first read that, I I didn't quite understand what the gates of hell, how were gates going to oppose me? And then I'd hear some preacher say, yes, the church is storming the gates of hell and will turn. But that's not what the text is saying. The gate that is used there is in the sense of a prison. And you and I have to understand that we're living in a hostile world, a world that is controlled by God's enemy, Satan. Why else does 1 Corinthians 4 call him the God of this world? 
How else could he take Jesus up to a high place and show him all the kingdoms of the world and offer that to Jesus if he would bow down and worship him if he did not have control of the world? Why else does Ephesians chapter 6 say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and wickedness and spiritual wickedness in high places? I'm telling you... When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, he is talking about hell trying to enclose us or imprison us. You see, in the Bible, that English word hell is translated from three different Greek words. One of them is Gehenna, and it speaks about fire. It was the place of burning. The word that is translated hell here is Hades, and it was the word for the netherworld. It was the demonic spiritual realm of Satan and his demons. That's the word that Jesus uses. It is not the flame of hell. It is the power of hell. It is the network of hell that has tried to encircle all of us and imprison all of us to keep us from walking with God. And Jesus said, let me tell you something, it'll never prevail against my church. It'll never prevail. So the church provides for me and you protection. When I'm part of a church, when I'm involved in the church, there is a measure of protection that is around my life that cannot be replaced or duplicated by anything else. You want a good nature illustration of this? When I was a kid, you know, we used to watch those animal shows, Wild American, that sort of thing. Well, basically, we didn't have anything on TV, and so that's what came on after cartoons on Saturday. And I remember the intro had like all these stimulating clips and there was one where the predator, the lion man, was running after like a zebra or an antelope or a wildebeest or something like that. And I mean, they're dodging and he's turning and just about the time something's going to happen, it, it cuts to another scene. You don't know what happens, that's the hook. you you got to watch it. And when you watch the show, what you find out is that the predator would be out on the fringe, and he'd look for the straggler, the one that was separate from the herd, whether or not they were young or old or just simply not paying attention. And the predator would go after the individual animal and oftentimes would take it down. But then there was the twist, and that is when the predator would leap upon one of the animals and the herd came to the rescue. And they turned and they encircled the predator and they began to uh, hoof it and snort and bite and kick and actually get the predator to release and the victim survives. And all the difference made was because it was in the herd and not outside of the herd. Do you think it's any accident that 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I am telling you there is a measure of protection that comes with being a part of a local church. Now look, some people discount this and say, oh, oh you, what do you think? There's a little red man with horns and a tail and a pitchfork that's coming around trying to get you. No, that's not how Satan operates. That, 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 that is not a biblical description of what Satan is. You want to know how Satan operates in our day and time when you separate from the church? Check your mental health. Suicide rates are up because of isolation. You just think about your own mental health. If you want to decline, then withdraw 
Withdraw from church. Withdraw from community. Withdraw from friends. Go in your house. Shut the doors. Don't call anybody. Don't text anybody. Don't communicate with anybody. And watch your mental health go down and down and down. And watch yourself get depressed and discouraged and think negative thought after negative thought because the only voice that you hear is the voice inside of your head, and it's a pessimist. And lo and behold, some intrusive friend shows up, drags you out of your house to some activity you didn't want to go to, and you have to act like a decent human being around them, which means you have to make small talk with them, which means that you actually get into conversations, and then you come away from something you didn't even want to go to, realizing that you feel better afterwards. Ding, 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 ding. Why do you think that the church is supposed to gather because God knows that when we isolate we become vulnerable and our enemy comes after us and when we're a part of a church the way God wants us to be a part of a church there's a level of protection that is there the fifth and final dimension that I want you to see is participation and this is in verse 19 where Jesus says this and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, he's not talking to Peter. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the corporate church. He is delegating authority. They say, how do you know that? Sounds like he's talking to Peter. Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 18, the second mention of the church, and God talks about conflict resolution, he says that when it gets to the church level, if he doesn't hear the church, then whatever the church binds on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever the church looses on earth is loosed in heaven. And I say by cross-reference, this is speaking to the church. What we find here is that God has deputized the church to carry out his work on planet earth so if you want to participate in the work of God on planet earth you need to be a part of the church now I understand parachurch organizations and I'm not against them as long as we understand that the parachurch organization comes alongside of the church to help carry out the mission of the church so as Southern Baptists we have the the International Mission Board and it serves the local churches to help get missionaries to the field we have seminaries well they train the men that are called in our churches to ministry that we cannot train with the theological education they come alongside of us to train that but I am telling Telling you the main ministry of God is done on planet earth through the local church because that's the entity that he has delegated authority to and if you want to participate in the work of God if you want to have some meaning in your life you need to be a part of a church investing in something that is eternal I remember before I was saved as a young man who thought mostly shallow thoughts having some pretty deep thoughts when I was depressed. And one of them was, what is the purpose of life? You see, because I had come from some hardships, and life had taught me that it wasn't always going to be good or easy. My dad died when I was 16, so longevity was not on my radar screen. There's no promise of a long life. We didn't have money. Actually, we had been on welfare and food stamps, so, so uh, wealth and luxury and ease was, was not on there. I looked around at the people around me, and where I grew up, it, it was in a recession. The coal mines had shut down, so there are a lot of people who didn't have good jobs. 
They were working a job that they didn't really want to work, giving the best years of their life to something they didn't want to do. Uh, most of the, the families that I knew weren't necessarily Christians, and so the, the husbands and wives didn't seem to like each other very much. They, uh, they were always complaining about each other and griping about each other. And so a, as a teenage boy, I'm thinking, well, what's the purpose of life? This is some sort of cruel joke. If I'm planted here for a few years, and I've got to spend the best, healthiest years of my life doing something I don't want to do, I've got to spend my life married to somebody I really don't want to be married to, and then by the time I get to retire, all my money goes to buy my prescriptions and get me back and forth to the doctor there is no purpose in living a life like that and then I got saved and I realized that my purpose in life is not found in my wealth it's not found in my job it's not found in my health it is found in fulfilling the will of God on planet earth and that he had an open door on this thing called the church, and I could come in and get as involved in the work of God as I wanted to be involved because he had made a way for participation. Let me tell you something. You can't do that through a screen. Now, I don't want to run off all my Facebook crowd. I'm thankful that people are tuning in. And I understand that there are some people who have some valid health concerns, that it would be a risk for them to assemble together in a large crowd. But I also know that there are some perfectly healthy Christians out there who have changed their view of the church, and they are not participating and assembling the way that God wants them to do. And so my hope is that through the revelation of God's word, we come back to this core belief of what the church is, the benefits of the church, and how we ought to be a part of it. Would you bow with me? As you